It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying different Hey everyone, and welcome to the Growth Hub podcast brought to you by SaaS marketing agency Advanced B2B. It's your host here, Edward Ford, and today we're joined by Blake Bartlett, who is partner at OpenView. In this episode, Blake joins us to talk about the one growth channel that many teams may be overlooking, and that is the product itself. Blake and his team at OpenView coined the term product-led growth, and he introduces us to the concept, what it actually is, and how companies can start developing a product-driven growth culture within their DNA. Blake also explains how cross-functional teams from marketing, sales, product, and customer success can leverage a product's inherent virality as an acquisition channel, as well as how you can build in virality into your product. We hear about the implications for pricing and packaging, the role of marketing and sales teams as part of a product-led growth strategy, as well as some examples of good product-led growth companies, and much more. As ever, stay tuned to the end of the episode where Blake takes on our Fast Five Challenge. So here is episode 23 of the Growth Hub podcast with Blake Bartlett, partner at OpenView. Well, welcome to another episode of the Growth Hub podcast and welcome to the show, Blake Bartlett, partner at OpenView. So Blake, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this episode, which is all about product-led growth. And I guess that's a really good starting point. So what actually is product-led growth? Yeah, um, this is something that uh, that I'm certainly very passionate about and uh, that we are here at OpenView uh, more broadly as a firm as well. Um, and I'd say that product-led growth, uh, first and foremost, uh, it is a go-to-market strategy. Um, and it's a go-to-market strategy that uh, primarily relies on your product itself um, as the primary means for user acquisition or customer acquisition, um, conversion, uh, monetization, uh, expansion, retention. Um, so it basically relies on product instead of you know the traditional people that might sit in sales and marketing as the front lines um, of your growth engine. So so really, it's kind of all about you know how do you pursue growth um, and and what is your the the sort of uh, organizing principle. Um, of your go-to-market strategy. Um, However, um, I think that it also kind of expands beyond that product-led growth does uh, really to kind of encompass the the essence or the DNA of a company. It's not just merely this is how we we grow, but it really is this this is how we operate and this is kind of, um, you know, the the way that we, uh, our default mode as a company is that we think first and foremost about product uh, in all things um, and then also kind of in, in how we uh, specifically pursue growth as well. So it's not merely just go to market. It is kind of really the, the essence and the soul of, of a company, if you will, um, if, if that's how you're wired. Yeah. So you just mentioned there that it's really about the whole company getting behind the product led growth movement. But who would you say actually owns product led growth? Would it be product teams, marketing teams, growth teams, even sales teams, customer success teams, since everyone needs to be involved? Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> well, be, going back to what I had said before is that it's, that it's more than just a go-to-market strategy. It really is kind of the, the core DNA of a company. Um, you know, it, there isn't a single owner in the organization, so to speak. It is a uh, cross-functional um, you know, pursuit, right? It's not just a marketing thing. It's not just a product thing. It's not just 
um, you know, a sales thing. It's, it's not just a customer success thing. It really kind of touches and influences all of those areas. Um, you know, and, and also kind of, you know, what, what features you build, how you build the product, what you prioritize. So really kind of it's owned by everyone. And if that's the case, and if, if product like growth really is the, the DNA and essence of your company, then ultimately it's, it's owned at the top. Um, you know, it kind of flows down from the executive leadership team, from the CEO, from, from, from the founding team as well. Yeah. So who are some examples of good product led growth companies? Definitely. Yeah. Product-led growth is one of these terms that, um, you know, the listeners here might not have heard the term before. Right. Um, but we all know what, what it's describing. <laughs> and, and, and that is if you look at all of the SaaS companies um, that folks are trying to emulate these days, that founders and builders, company builders are trying to emulate these days, um, they are by and large built on product-led growth. So Slack is a great example. Trello is a great example. Uh, in our portfolio of companies that we work with, um, Calendly is a great example. Expensify, Datadog, you know, a lot of the, the paragons of, uh, you know, folks that we're trying to emulate these days really have, you know, built this product-like growth strategy. So I, I think uh, one of the reasons we, you know, and product-like growth is a term that we came up with here at OpenView is because we saw this phenomenon happening. We saw the success of all these companies that I just, that, that I just mentioned, you know, kind of both in our portfolio and beyond. And we said, what, what is the the, the sort of common denominator here. And I think um, prior to coming up with a term and sort of a, a framework like product like growth, I think a lot of folks in, in, you know, would kind of describe it merely as, well, that's the freemium strategy or that's the bottoms up strategy. Um, but again, kind of back to some of the comments I made at the beginning is that we didn't feel that that accurately described that, that was kind of almost cheapened, you know, what we saw in these companies. Uh, it was more about the organizing DNA than it was, you know, kind of about uh, merely a, a small strategy or tactic, like a, a pricing strategy, like freemium, um, or just describing the way that, you know, you grow within organization as being bottoms up or tops down. It really was more about, you know, kind of that de default operating mode as, as a company. And so, yeah, it's, it's what you see in Slack. It's what you see in Trello. It's what you see in Expensify. It's what you see in, in Datadog. Yeah. And I think one common theme that connects all those companies you just mentioned is, virality and virality itself plays a super important role in product-led growth. So tell us about that. How does that work? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> virality is one of those things that um, when it's in, in any sort of product or in any um, business or growth model, um, inherently when it exists, um, it can be very, very powerful. Um, now there are some, and it can really drive, you know, growth and awareness and adoption, um, you know, of your product. Um, in, in some products um, or some sort of, uh, you know, kind of problems that are being solved through uh, technology and software products are inherently viral, right? Going back to uh, companies that I work with, take an example like Calendly, uh, which is all about scheduling meetings um, or uh, calls or get togethers uh, between two people or between multiple people. Um, you know, so I, I describe for Calendly that there is no single player use case for Calendly. Uh, if you're using Calendly by yourself for personal productivity, something is wrong. <laughs> the only reason to use Calendly is yeah. to somebody else. There, there is a recipient on the other side. It's naturally inherently viral or collaborative because meetings naturally involve more than one person, right? Um, another great example is you and I here are speaking on Zoom. So whether um, it's Zoom or it's go to meeting in the past or it's join me or something like that. Again, there is no single player use case there is no solo use case for Zoom. Um, the, the sole purpose of it is to have 
two people or more than two people meet and connect. And so having that natural virality um, can there, therefore sort of propel a lot of the, 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 the growth in your, your business and build awareness, right? If I had never heard about Zoom before, and you invited me to this, um, you know, to this uh, discussion here for the podcast, and I received the Zoom link, I click on it, I automatically discover what Zoom is. And I don't just discover what Zoom is by seeing the link and going on the website and saying, isn't this interesting? This is a, this is a website. I learn about it by actually using the product, right? Uh, you and I are, are using Zoom right now. Um, and I think that's a powerful thing. And, and so being able to recognize those viral loops, whether it's the, the core foundational problem that you're solving is a collaboration problem, um, or if there is just sort of uh, you know, connected virality opportunities in your business through you know, kind of collaboration with team members or collaboration externally, um, or there's uh, virality that you can add in, it, lo- it adds a lot of that power that uh, allows the product to do the work for you instead of having to you know, buy ads or send emails in order to, to build awareness and get people to discover your product. So virality can be very powerful in that discovery mode and that promotion mode um, you know, to, to, to build uh, the, the user base. Yeah, exactly. So is it possible to create virality in a product after launch or does a product need to be designed for virality from the very beginning, from day one? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and that kind of goes to a little bit of what I was talking about, um, you know, just, just before, which is that there are some of these problem statements um, and sort of use cases that are inherently viral. And so you don't really have to try to make, you know, Zoom or Join Me or Calendly viral. It just it naturally is that way um, because of what I was describing before. But there are many other examples where maybe there is an inherent virality in the core problem statement that you're solving, but there is opportunities for virality uh, in order to add that amplification, uh, amplification effect. So a great example would be, um, you know, take Dropbox, for example, um, as a use case. Now that does have a single player mode, right? You can just use Dropbox yourself um, instead of your local file system, um, you can, in directory, you can store things on the cloud in, in sort of a cloud-based folder system and in, in sort of document repository. However, there is also a lot of collaboration that can be added to that. So if, if Dropbox had just stopped at that personal use case um, of you know, unlimited storage in the cloud, it still would have been a very valuable product, but that existed before. There were sort of backup solutions or things like Carbonite or Mosey that kind of were predecessors to Box and Dropbox and Google Drive um, and, and the like that existed, right, and solved that single player use case. But I think the, the thing that really kind of propelled the Boxes and the Dropboxes of the world to the success that they have today, first and foremost, it's all about that collaboration, right? That I have a folder and if I need to share files with you, instead of emailing them all to you, I can invite you in and I can invite everyone else in that needs to collaborate or, or do something with that, that data and that content, uh, whether it's for a personal use case, sharing photos with my friend, or if it's a business use case of sharing um, you know, files and data with you um, as, as a collaborator, um, being able to take advantage of that viral loop uh, is really kind of what propelled the very, very efficient growth that we see in Dropbox uh, in particular as, as an example. Um, so, so yeah, it can be um, added in or it can be layered in. And I think it's important for product owners and for entrepreneurs to be constantly looking for that opportunity uh, to leverage virality um, where it might exist or where it might be able to be added into your, your product flow. Yeah, love it. So what are the implications of product-led growth on your pricing and your packaging? 
Yeah, definitely. Well, um, you know, one of my colleagues here at, at OpenView, uh, Kyle Poyer, um, he is, is our director of market strategy and spends a lot of time thinking about pricing packages. So he's written a lot of content um, about mastering SaaS pricing. He and I uh, did a tag team uh, sort of discussion and, and, uh, and speech at uh, Saster this past year, just a couple months ago. Um, you know, about uh, pricing and packaging. So there's a lot of content out there for, from us and from others, uh, like Price Intelligently and many others out there. So you can kind of keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into this. Um, but what I would say is that, you know, specifically just at the high level, how pricing and packaging is affected by product-led growth is that you have to think about product-led growth is using your product to, to build that awareness and to get the initial users, right? So whether that's um, you know, the discovery is, uh, and the first time that I use it is through using a, a free version of the product that's free forever, uh, so a freemium strategy, or if it's just a free trial, um, I think that you, you naturally need to figure out where does the paywall exist? Um, and there's a relationship between where does the paywall exist and what is my user journey, not even customer journey yet, but what is my user journey? And you want to make sure that in that user journey, I have been able to sufficiently experience the product and gain value out of using the product before you're asking me to swipe my credit card uh, or before you're oftentimes some companies take it, you know, before you're even asking me to create an account with the username and password, you have to show me value because otherwise it's just the same old experience we've always had, which is this is gated content or I have to contact sales or I can't actually see what the product is outside of the website you know, copy and, and screenshots until I am a paying customer or until I get a, a demo from a salesperson or something like that. So being able to understand delivering value and time to value and having that sort of, that almost I can't envision my life without this product, then the paywall comes in. Um, and, and, and also the paywall is something that the value relationship between the value I'm getting and the price that I'm paying is sort of naturally there, right? Um, and it makes sense and it doesn't send me away. And so Slack is a great example and they've done some amazing things with pricing and packaging. But first and foremost with Slack or you know, even back to the Dropbox example, it's usage-based pricing, right? So I start using the product, um, you know, let's, let's focus on Slack specifically. I start using the product internally here at my organization and I can use the full featured product for free. Um, and I start getting to a point where I'm using less email for internal purposes. You know, Slack is, is really kind of becomes the thing that, that, that we use for internal communication. I start adding a few integrations. I get used to slash commands. And then after I've been using it for a while or after I get a bunch of teammate members in, I start to see that I can only go so far back in terms of my history and being able to see the message history. And if I want to see that message history, then I'm faced with a paywall. This content is available. It exists. But in order to, you know, access what I said two, two weeks ago to one of my colleagues about a particular project, in order to get that and have that record, be able to reference back to it or see that file that was attached to a Slack message, now I have to upgrade to premium. But at this point, I've been using it and we, it's become sort of, I can't imagine communication or sort of collaboration inside my organization without it. So I'm naturally comfortable upgrading to premium. And the price isn't, isn't crazy either, right, for the entry price point. So I'm going through a lot of detail and I could keep going here in terms of pricing and packaging because it's such a rich topic and there's so many different things you can do with it, but hopefully at a high level, that relationship between value and time to value um, relative to pricing and when you bring that in and show and introduce that paywall, hopefully, hopefully that gives a, a little bit of color there. 
Yeah, that was awesome. And we can add some links in the show notes to some of the content that you referenced there. So as a good follow-up to what you just mentioned in, in that answer, you referred to the user a lot. So I'd love to ask, what does a product-led approach to growth mean for marketers and how they actually build their marketing playbooks? Since it seems product-led growth is a ground-up approach focused on users rather than, say, the more traditional top-down marketing approach that is focused on the buyer. Exactly. Yeah, that that's the 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 core um, sort of principle of product-led growth versus more of a traditional sales and marketing-led growth, which is historically um, the way that that sales had worked in in the software world and in in many worlds is that you go to the buyer, the decision maker. Um, they've never heard of you before, or maybe they have some light awareness of you, um, and you start cold calling them, or you get a warm intro, or something like that, and you start this conversation of hey, you have this problem in your organization, here's this, pro uh, this product that's gonna solve your problem, and you go through the traditional sales cycle, which might be a couple months, it might be six months, might be you know, in some enterprise cases, a year or something like that. You go through many demos, many sort of business case analyses, many ROI calculators, lots of negotiations back and forth between the, the two parties. Eventually you come to an agreement, then you go through the whole procurement process, um, then congratulations, you have a new customer. Or to the customer, congratulations, you have a new vendor. But that's, you haven't arrived, right? Now you have to go into implementation. And now, you know, that stakeholder, that sort of internal champion in the organization has to now kind of communicate to the entire team of everyone that's going to use it. We're going to migrate off this old system or this old way of doing this particular workflow. And we're going to move to this new product. And, you know, then you go through implementation, then there's training and all this stuff, and eventually it gets pushed down to the end users. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, um, but it's one way to approach it. And I think that increasingly we're seeing you know, it getting flipped, that funnel getting flipped, as, as kind of you described, and focusing on the user first, delivering value to the user, and getting the user to make a decision um, to use your product more, getting the user to make a decision to invite collaborators in, whether those in, internally inside your organization or externally. And then after they've experienced value and have hit that initial paywall, then how can we get this one team or this one group to expand to multiple teams or multiple groups within an organization? So um, if you go, if you're trying to embody product-led growth, but then you continue to focus first and foremost from a product standpoint or market, marketing messaging standpoint or a marketing outreach standpoint on the decision maker, um, and the buyer, um, there's going to be a disconnect there because the users are the ones that are aware and the buyer is not going to have any idea. So focusing your messaging more on the user, which is a lot of times it might be a bit more tactical, right? It's more about the individual use case and the value you're going to get out of using this product um, more so than it is about the ROI calculator for your entire organization. Um, and then you have to be mindful of that user journey more so than the buyer journey, right? Um, you started using the product as an individual user. Now my messaging, whether it's in the product through in-app messaging or a, a product tour or the messaging that I'm seeing or you know, the, the nurturing campaigns that I'm getting now as a user, it becomes how do I get more people into this product? Um, and, and, and how do I sort of uh, get value out of the advanced features and functionality? So it really is more about that user journey and the messaging and the content that you're, you're producing and showing. Um, and then eventually there, there is a buyer message but it comes later. It doesn't start with the buyer message. So hopefully that, that gives some, some context there. Yeah. So does that mean that marketers have got it all wrong and we should be building user personas rather than say buyer personas? 
in product-led growth, yes, um, you should start there. Again, you know, eventually you still, um, is, is assuming that you are going to expand within an account and become a, a larger, you know, price point, um, you know, that does likely have to go through, you know, an actual business case decision. And, you know, if you upgrade to a point where you're paying tens of thousands of dollars or many product-led growth companies get to a point where they're paying, their customers are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in some cases, um, if you get to that point, you are going to have to speak with the buyer and you are going to have to have a salesperson engage, right? You're not going to, very rarely will you have a six-figure purchase or a seven-figure purchase that gets swiped on a credit card with, without ever talking to someone. So it's, it's not, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and only do users and not, and not buyers. Um, but I think that focusing on users in a product-led growth model really is, is the, the core focus. Um, now, some products, it doesn't make sense to have a purely product-led growth model. Um, you know, I, I point to examples like mega large enterprise deals or products that are very complex and that oftentimes are installed on premise. That still exists in the world today, right? Um, look at Palantir as an example. You know, who they're selling to, a lot of times it's government or large financial institutions. These are large on-premise deployments with oftentimes multi-seven-figure deals. Um, and that's just inherently to, inherent to the problem that they're solving. And so, you know, I think you can take some, some things away from time to value and, you know, sort of making a delightful experience to users and adding value to them and things like that from product-led growth. But, you know, I think you should, in that case, as a Palantir or a large enterprise-oriented solution, you still will be primarily speaking to the buyer. So I think you need to kind of have that, that realization of what kind of business are we, are we building um, what is natural for our sort of audience and for our use case um, and, and what is the go-to-market strategy that we have and, uh, and then sort of orient from there. But if you are trying to be product-led growth, then yeah, user journeys start um, and that's where you begin and then you eventually end at buyer journeys rather than the other way around. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point because of course, many of the examples that we've discussed here have focused on more well-known self-service SaaS companies. So how would say a SaaS company targeting mid-market to enterprise space go about applying product-led growth methodology and ideology to their growth models? Yeah, definitely. Well, um, you can still start with the user and eventually, and, and you can be serving the mid-market, you can be serving the enterprise, you can still start small and start with the individual user and then expand from there. So. Um, you know, we see in, in some of our portfolio companies that folks with product-led growth models that where everybody, almost everybody starts with, you know, the initial free product and one single user swiping a credit card, paying, you know, kind of tens of dollars per month. Um, some of these have expanded into situations where they now have mega large enterprises um, paying seven figures uh, a year, you know, millions of dollars a year. So um, just because you're targeting a larger customer at the end of the day, doesn't mean that product-led growth is, is not applicable. Um, and, and, and if you are in that example where it is large enterprise oriented and it is going to be top-down and you do have to be, say, on-prem or go through a traditional you know, buying process because of security concerns that product-led growth into financial services because it's such a regulated industry or into government might not you know, kind of work as well, right? Back to the Palantir example. Um, you know, so even in that case where you are a more traditional sales-led organization because of the, the end market or because of the product that you're selling, you can still take principles from product-led growth. Time to value, right? Um, just because you have a, a top-down enterprise sale doesn't mean that you should have a terrible user experience 
or you, you can get away with a terrible user experience. Um, you still want people internally to adopt the product. And even if the buyer at the top of the organization is the champion making the decision that gets pushed down to a bunch of individual users, when that individual user experiences the product, you still want them to be delighted. You still want to have fast time to value and you still want them to be singing the praises and, and sort of, you know, constantly standardizing their workflow on your product internally. And so even if you, you ultimately have a sales like growth model, there are still a lot of principles um, and concepts that can be taken you know, from product like growth and apply to sort of how you do what you do, um, both in go to market as well as in, in product development. Yeah, exactly. And I think companies like Binder based in the Netherlands and Qualtrics, for example, are good examples of, of what you just mentioned there about enterprise SaaS that really focuses on that great user experience first and foremost. So it could be a good, yep. good couple of examples to, to go and check out. So, okay, we've talked about marketing. So let's talk a bit about sales. So is product-led growth anti-sales? It's a great question. And I think a lot of times the initial uh, response to that or, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the gut response uh, is no. Well, you know, uh, if I have my product doing the work for me, then I don't need salespeople. And a lot of times uh, I have found that sometimes, when, especially when it comes to the founder, um, if a founder has built um, a product and has built their company to be more self-serve oriented and to embody product-led growth, uh, and they've gotten to a level of success, um, you know, in size and scale without having had salespeople, um, it can reinforce the idea that I don't need salespeople. And a lot of times you arrive at that point because people, you know, have a negative connotation with sales. And I totally understand why that is. You know, most people don't like being sold to. Most people don't like receiving cold calls. And so there's, there can be this this sort of, um, you know, belief um, or sort of, uh, you know, connotation that sales is sleazy, right? And that sales is, um, you know, is, is really, it's a crutch for people who have bad products, right? So, um, you know, sales is not necessary if you have a really good product. And, and I think that, um, you know, that, that can be the, the default orientation, especially early on, as I was mentioning. But um, I would posit that sales does have a role in product-led growth. Um, and that you can do sales in a product-led growth way, and that you can do sales in a, uh, you can sort of remove the negative connotation, and you can do sales in a way that's um, sort of true to your, your ethos as a company, and that isn't sleazy, right? So for example, um, you know, I, I like to reframe sales not so much as calling people who don't want to be called and trying to convince them to buy something that they don't need. Instead, reorient it and reframe it as customer success, right? That's, that's a term that we all, that nobody has a problem with today. Everybody wants their customers to be successful and customer success really has kind of taken the SaaS world by storm. But I do think that customer success, a lot of times it just stops at account management 2.0, right? It's all about how do we, when they renew, we're coming up for renewal, how do we sort of mitigate churn? How do we get more customers to renew? How do we get more customers to upsell and to buy more? And in most, uh, I've seen a lot of times that, um, you know, people can stop at customer success being that sort of, you know, new, new and improved version of account management. But really, if you think about customer success, you know, let's get customers set up for success from day one, right? Um, and then that's going to make the ultimate sort of renewal conversation that much easier because if they're set up for success from day one and they're on that success path from day one, then you know you almost don't even need to have the renewal conversation because they've um, you know you, you know from day one that they're they're 
they're getting value out of the product and that they're using the product and you're monitoring that usage and things like that. So, you know, um, implementation is, is an onboarding and training um, is, is a part of, uh, of customer success. But if you take it even one click earlier than that, when somebody's at the beginning of your funnel, they haven't yet paid you, they haven't yet swiped their credit card, they haven't yet signed that contract, but they're a user right? Because you have a, a freemium strategy or because you have a free trial strategy and you're embodying product-led growth. Well, don't you want that user to be successful as well? And don't you want them to be successfully on the path to conversion and then successfully implemented and successfully onboarded and successfully renewing and successfully upselling? Yes. The answer is yes. So if you reframe customers as customers or sorry, users, non-paying users, they're, they are your customers. They just don't pay you money yet, right? And we want all of our customers, paying and non-paying, to be successful. Well, speaking to customers that are up funnel, that are you know, not yet paying you, that is sales, right? So if you reframe it more as proactive customer success for people who don't yet pay us and we want to get them to get as much value out of our product as possible, and I want to reach out to them as a human, to have a human to human connection in order to understand their problem, help them see how my product can solve their problem and help them sort of in the earliest part of their journey get to a point of success um, even before they pay me money. Well, everybody can get excited about that because it's a, a good kumbaya moment of, you know, kind of bear hugging the customer and making them love your product. Well, congratulations, now you're doing sales, but we've just reframed it. Um, to remove some of the sleazy sort of connotations of historical sales and reframed it as user success and customer success and, you know, sort of being human to human, which is, is certainly a, a growing trend in, in desire and technology and in enterprise technology today. So I, I think it's all about sanitizing the word sales and, um, and that can get us to a point where we see how it can be adopted and we can see the value of it, um, you know, in a product like growth model. Yeah, it definitely sounds like sales people would need to have a shift in mindset when it comes to sales within the product-led growth model. But I'd love to know what changes would salespeople need to make to the actual sales process when following a product-led approach to growth compared to, say, the traditional top-down approach that we talked about earlier that's focused on new customer acquisition? Yeah, so in the traditional sales-led model, um, you know, you look, you get inbound leads, um, and then you also have outbound prospecting. And a lot of times, the filtering of who am I going to prioritize, especially these days, is it's all about um, you know the firmographics of the prospect, whether they're an inbound lead that has read some content on your site and is in a nurture campaign, or if it's just a raw sort of outbound that I'm doing as an SDR or something like that or as a marketing team. It's really, when I say firmographics, it's who is our target customer um, and which of the leads that I have on this list or on this uh, sort, of, uh, sort of flow of, of people that I have to go through, which of those leads or those target accounts best fits my ideal customer profile and that's who I'm gonna focus on. So let me just cold call them and bang on them as much as I can with emails and with, with calls in order to get those best fit customers you know, to take my call and to get into sort of uh, my funnel, right? And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but that is more of a sales-led approach. Product-led growth um, flips it a bit and says, okay, let's start with people that are using my product today um, and people that are sort of uh, getting value and sort of reaching these, um, I think a lot of times it's, it's referred to as magic moments in my sort of user journey, right? 
they, they, they saw the product for the first time, they created an account, um, they did their first action in the product. Um, so for, you know, for a Dropbox, I uploaded my first, I created my first folder. I uploaded my first file into that folder. Well, what comes next? Now I invite some people in to collaborate. And then you get to that point where there's enough data that's in the system or there's enough users that have been invited or they've been using it long enough or they've you know, ha reached those magic moments where they get value. And that's when you reach out um, to speak with them, right? So you're looking more about where is somebody in my user journey and where have they reached that point of um, you know, experiencing value and being familiar enough with the product such that now is the time where it's, it's elegant and it's, and it's human and it's natural for me to reach out, right? So you're flipping it a bit and looking and letting the user lead and letting them tell you I'm ready to speak with somebody um, rather than you just uh, reaching out cold and, and disrupting their day. Now you can still layer in the firmographics piece because again, if you have a product like Growth Funnel and you have thousands and thousands and thousands of users, um, even if somebody's going down the, the correct user journey, you can't call every single one of them, right? Because that just doesn't scale. Because maybe somebody's going down the right user journey, but it's a three-person organization. Um, or you have somebody who has, exhibits the same exact uh, behavior, but they're a 300-person organization. And yet again, somebody who's the same exact uh, behavior and they're a 3,000-person organization. So you can't treat everybody exactly the same because obviously the three-person organization, you know, they should probably get more of a you know, an automated touch and a tech touch and sort of, um, and more of an efficient approach because of, you know, just the economics of it. But if you layer in this from a graphics and realize this is a 300 person company, this is a 3000 person company, then you can sort of um, make sure to be uh, reaching out to the right people where it's going to be make economic sense. And, and you learn that through, you know, great APIs that provide lead enrichment um, to the individual users uh, so that you can make that judgment call without a bunch of manual research, you know, things like Clearbit and others that enrich the, enrich the lead and, and tell you the combination of user behavior and, use, and where is somebody in the user journey and the firmographics and the sort of demographics of the individual user, now I know who to reach out to, um, but I'm doing it at the natural point in their journey rather than disrupting their day. Wow, yeah, love it. And if I could just ask one final question before we move into the last part of the interview, and I'd love to know in terms of benchmarking your progress and performance, what are some good metrics that you can use to actually measure the success of product-led growth? Yeah, um, there, I mean, at the end of the day, there aren't new metrics um, that necessarily, there usually aren't new metrics that are invented for product-led growth that are completely different than, than, other, you know, um, than other models. At the end of the day, the SaaS metrics are still the same relevant SaaS metrics. So whether it's you know, measuring the efficiency of your front end, you know, CAC payback period or, or something like that, um, or on the back end, you know, what's my gross churn versus my net, net churn on a, uh, on a dollars basis, right? Um, those are still the same metrics that you track. Um, and so, uh, you know, developing that baseline uh, for where you are, regardless of what your go-to-market model is, you're still tracking the same things uh, and you're still looking to make incremental improvement, um, you know, on those same core metrics. But the, the levers you pull in order to drive you know, CAC payback period down in a product like growth model are different than the levers that you pull in order to drive CAC payback period down in a sales led model. In the product led growth model, it's more about how can I remove friction um, in the user journey and in my funnel um, in order to increase conversion rate or to um, sort of increase time to value. And it's all about removing friction in the product. Um, and how can I increase the in-app messaging in order to drive the right outcomes? 
So that's the levers that you pull there by and large. And then the levers that you pull in a traditional sales-led model that doesn't think at all about product-led growth is how do I get the best sales reps? You know, how do I sort of, uh, you know, get fewer touches in my, uh, in my buyer journey? How do I increase the productivity of my sales team? How do I decrease ramp time for sales reps? So you can still get to a similar result of lowering CAC payback period, but the levers you pull in one versus the other are, are totally different. So there are, you know, kind of ultimately the same metrics. There are a couple metrics that I think are being layered in that are, that are really interesting in product-led growth that are additive. Uh, something, you know, uh, like PQLs, for example, which is a product qualified lead, uh, which is a, a totally different concept than, you know, what we've seen historically in sales and marketing led funnels, like a marketing qualified lead or a sales qualified lead. So you can layer in some additional things which would take in qualification criteria that are based on the user journey. I think those are really helpful, um, but they don't replace, you know, the, the same core SaaS metrics that everybody tracks. So um, yeah, if, if somebody's interested in those specific things, I would dig deeper into PQLs specifically. And there's been a bunch that's been written online about them. Awesome. And I had to ask because, you know, everyone in SaaS loves, loves metrics, especially in marketing and so forth. So thanks for that. So, all right. Well, let's move on to the closing questions and our fast five challenge. So all I'm going to do is ask five questions and all you need to do is answer as quickly as possible. So Blake, are you ready? I am ready. All right, let's do it. So first question, what is the one book that you would recommend others to read? Oh, sorry. I know this is fast five. Um, but <laughs> it's actually I'm, not that fast. It, it's typically quite slow. I think Liam Bugar described it as the leisurely stroll five. So you can take your time. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, so for recently, in terms of uh, best business books, um, I've, I've read a lot of really good books recently, but I th I'd say the, the two that have really stood out to me and have been uh, the most interesting um, have been two books that are closely related. So there's one called Grit, and there's another that's called Mindset. Um, and so I'd highly recommend both. And they, they kind of read a bit like self-help books. Um, and they could be probably found in the self-help section of a bookstore of Amazon. But what's different about them is that they're not people's opinions. They're empirically based. And so Grit, it's all about perseverance and, and sort of pushing through difficulty and resolve. And that is being the core principle for success. And then Mindset is also closely related. It's about the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset and the ability to learn anything. So those are incredibly powerful and I can't recommend both of those books highly enough. Great. Second question, a SaaS company that you love and why? So SaaS company that I love and why, um, I mean, I'm gonna point to one of my own companies, Expensify. Um, I've been working with these guys for uh, the last three years plus um, and you know, absolutely love what they're doing. Uh, I love it. One, because I'm a user of the product. So the same time that we became investors, we also became customers. So I've been using the product for about three and a half years now as well. And just that experience of being able to take pictures of receipts, put my phone back in my pocket and never think about expenses again and everything magically happens and gets filed for me. I mean, it just, uh, their tagline is that they make expense reports that don't suck. Um, and, and I can attest to that, that it doesn't suck and it takes this painful process and it makes it much more elegant and delightful. And so that's from a product standpoint, but just in general, um, I'd say a lot of my learnings about product-led growth um, have been by being an investor and a board member at Expensify, just seeing the way that they're pushing the envelope and doing things in an unconventional way really across the board and the way that that's led to success that, and, and true competitive advantage um, that is really, really hard to replicate 
from their competitors has just been a, a really, really eye-opening uh, and special experience. Yeah, and that, that is a big pain point. I think that's something we need here at Advanced B2B. So I'm going to call out Mikko and Pavel, my colleagues, that we need to check that out. So Expensify, there you have it. Third question, your favorite place to read about marketing, sales, SaaS online? My fear, honestly, it's probably LinkedIn. <laughs> and okay. why I say that is because um, I think this is the way that content has gone these days is that it's, it's really much less about having a, a chosen destination that I go and bookmark in my browser and look at every single day. I mean, I certainly read, you know, TechCrunch and, and Business Insider and things like that just to kind of stay up on the news. But honestly, LinkedIn has done such an amazing job to curate content that's important to my network. And obviously, my professional network is almost exclusively startup ecosystem, VC ecosystem, and SaaS ecosystem. So seeing what my sort of audience and network um, sort of votes to the top um, and, and says is most relevant and getting their daily digest emails even uh, for, for things that are trending on LinkedIn, um, I've just found it to be you know, tremendously valuable. So I get the best of the best and I don't really care where the ultimate destination was that it was published, but the best content gets surf surfaced to me. And I also really love what LinkedIn has done and what creators have done on LinkedIn with video recently. Um, it, it's really taken off and become a, a tremendous engagement mechanism. And I'll point to, to uh, a, a CEO that, that I'm a big fan of, a guy named Alan Gannett, uh, who's the CEO of TrackMaven. Um, if you don't know him, follow him. He's great. He's an amazing CEO. He's also really, really hilarious. <laughs> and he does amazing stuff with LinkedIn video. So I'd highly recommend uh, checking him out. Perfect. Then the fourth question, your most important growth metric. Uh, net dollar retention. So um, in terms of SaaS metrics, um, I think that um, no matter how fast you're growing, no matter how good your customer acquisition is, no matter how, no matter how efficient your, your customer acquisition is, if you can't retain those dollars and if you have a leaky bucket issue on the back end, um, it's eventually going to catch up with you and cause growth to stagnate. So churn is super important, but even more so, uh, more important than you know, gross retention is net net retention and net dollar retention. I, and I think that measuring it, the best way to measure it is on a cohort basis. So, you know, if I acquire a dollar of MRR or of ARR today um, in June of 2018, what is that dollar worth next month in July of 2018? What is it worth a year from now in June of 2019? What about two years from now? And so uh, tracking that dollar and the, and the sort of, net expansion or net attrition of that dollar over time uh, on a cohort basis, I think is the most powerful thing. Because if you have that net negative churn dynamic to where the dollar of MRR is worth say $1.20 or $1.50 over time, um, it just natch, it means your business will never stop growing. <laughs> um, and, and it really, and it will never shrink. Uh, and it's a really powerful thing. So um, net retention is, is by far the most powerful growth lever for exponential growth in a business. Yes. And then fifth question. So your best piece of advice for SaaS marketers. Try something new, honestly. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a lot of value that comes out of the traditional things, um, the content marketing and the listicles, the top 10 ways to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, you know, they're, they're, those things work, but, and in, you know, I think you need to cover your bases and do some of that standard stuff, but try something new um, and try something different um, and, and don't just try what's been tried before and, and what the well-worn paths are. 
um, and stop there, right? I'd say, you know, the paragon of, of folks that have done this the best um, that are really trying to blaze new trails um, that I'd point to here in Boston, um, and, and really not just Boston, but really kind of across the SaaS ecosystem are the guys over at Drift. Um, and so Dave Gerhart, who's, uh, you know, the leader over there on the marketing side, um, he's got an awesome podcast, um, you know, and the content they write. And, and it's not just what they've done, but it's also some of the really hard decisions that they've made because they've had hypotheses or because they've had theses that they're trying to test and prove. They're putting their money where their mouth is, right? I think, you know, they started with, we're not doing traditional content marketing anymore. We're not doing traditional blogging anymore. Um, you know, we're not doing lead forms anymore. We're doing away with all these things. They're, they're making big moves and really trying to take things to the next level and reinvent, uh, you know, B2B marketing rather than just be marginally better at the same tactics that have been, you know, tried and true for the last 10 years. Yeah, I think it's amazing what the Drift guys are doing. And if you want more Dave Gerhard and Drift, then you can check out episode eight of the Growth Hub podcast where I was talking to Dave about some of the cool things that they're doing at Drift. So, Hey, Blake, I have to say thank you so much, though, for joining us on the podcast. It's been absolutely amazing digging into the world of product-led growth. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. That was Blake Bartlett on product-led growth, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. As ever, if you have any thoughts, feedback, then you're always welcome to get in touch with me on Twitter at NordicEdward, LinkedIn, or reach out to me at edward at advancedb2b.fi. So thank you for listening to the Growth of Podcast brought to you by Advanced B2B. This is your host, Edward Ford, signing off, and make sure you check out advancedb2b.com for more content and resources on everything B2B SaaS growth. It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers